1: It's the start of March 1872 and the colony of New South Wales is witnessing events whose importance will be felt for the rest of Australian history. Politicians are contesting an election for all 72 seats in the Legislative Assembly. This includes a seat that will be won by Henry Parks, leading to his first term as New South Wales Premier and setting the stage for him to become the father of Australian Federation. Meanwhile, the Brig Maria, which in late January set sail from Sydney carrying 76 adventurers, hell-bent on finding gold in New Guinea, has been wrecked on the Great Barrier Reef, with nearly half the men drowned, eaten by sharks, or killed by Aborigines when they reached shore. Those who survived are now arriving in Sydney, and one such survivor is a young man named Lawrence Hargrave, who, in two decades will become one of the world's greatest aviation pioneers. Of course, the editors of the Sydney Morning Herald can't know how these two people are to shape Australian history any more than they can know the true nature of two advertisements printed in their paper on Monday, the 4th of March, 1872. In one of the dense columns of tiny type on page 8, wedged between employment opportunities for dressmakers and saddlers, are a pair of classified ads. The first reads, a steady man required for country store, drive, pair, horse wagon. Applicants are to write to TYC, care of the Herald office. The second advertisement placed by the same employer and asking the same method of correspondence reads, Clark wanted, active, intelligent for country store, liberal salary to competent person. Across Sydney, more than 200 steady, active and intelligent men dip their quills in ink pots to put themselves forward for these positions. What they can't possibly imagine is that they have just applied to be murdered. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. When we think of Sydney's main western thoroughfares, we usually think of its increasingly clogged roads and overburdened train lines. But the city's first inland route wasn't a road or a railway. It was the Parramatta River, and it was used from the very start of British colonisation for exploration, transportation and commerce. Sailing or rowing the Calm River was easier than hacking through rough bush and safer than risking clashes with the Aboriginal tribes who'd called this country home since the dawn of time. Today, commuters, tourists, rowers, yachties and anglers enjoy the Parramatta River and the grand view of waterside western suburbs it offers before opening into Sydney Harbour. But nearly 150 years ago, this waterway was the scene of some of the most cold-blooded killings in Australian history. And more people would almost certainly have been murdered if not for the careful work of detectives who knew their city, and the fact that the criminals responsible weren't nearly as clever or cunning as they imagined. At 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday, the 12th of March, 1872, at low tide, a young labourer named James Freeman was rowing home to Hunter's Hill along the Parramatta River when his nostrils were assailed by a foul stench as he approached Kissing Point. Up ahead, Freeman saw a dark lump bobbing in the water. At first he thought it was a rotting horse carcass. Drawing closer, he found he was staring at the head, shoulders and arms of a dead man who was partially covered by a torn coat. Tamping down his revulsion, Freeman towed the corpse close to shore, tied it to an oar and went to raise the alarm with police one mile north at Ride. Freeman returned with a senior constable and the two men towed the body to the Ride wharf. There... With much effort, they hauled it out of the water, finding the deceased's ankles were expertly bound with rope that had been tied around a stone weighing about 70 kilograms. The police officer cut the rope. Then this constable turned over the badly decomposed body and, as he later testified, found a large contused wound near the temple penetrating through the skull. The brain was protruding. The dead man's head... Bore several other serious wounds. Searching the clothing, the constable found waterlogged documents. The body was transported to the outhouse at Face's Hotel in Ryde, presumably the outhouse being the best venue suited to the awful stench. There, a doctor made a further examination. In life, the man had stood about 5'8 and was in his mid-twenties. He had seven separate head injuries meaning he'd likely been fatally wounded or even dead before he was disposed of in the river. His identity wasn't a mystery for long. The waterlogged documents were carefully dried and, actually legible, revealed the victim to be an Englishman named John Bridger. These personal papers, references, work and pay logs, indicated he'd been a ward steward aboard big ships plying the high seas for the past five years. Another paper showed that just a month ago, John Bridger had been discharged from the steamship Rosario. He'd intended to start a new life in Australia as what was then called a new chum. But this new chum's new life had been ruthlessly cut short. Robbery appeared to be the motive, for there were no valuables on the body. Police also reasonably assumed that they were looking for at least two killers because one man couldn't have lifted a stone that heavy. Further, the type of naval rope that had been used to tie John Bridges' ankles was unusual. It had a special inner weave. And that it had been tied with special half-hitched knots strongly suggested that at least one of the murderers had also worked on ships. Knowing the identity of the dead man, detectives worked stealthily and quickly to speak to those who'd known him in Sydney In order to get an idea of the property that he'd owned and that was now unaccounted for an acquaintance told police that he'd had a drink with john bridger at a city hotel on the 7th of march the day he'd disappeared bridger told this man that he'd gotten a job at a country store in bathurst that had been advertised a few days earlier in the sydney morning herald that evening he was going to the king street wharf to meet his new employers who were going to take him by boat to Parramatta, from where they would get a carriage inland. Visiting the Sydney Morning Herald office, the police obtained the handwritten manuscript left by this TYC, on which was written the two employment advertisements. Talking to newspaper advertising employees yielded a description of the man who'd placed the ads. All of this was enough to give the detectives a hunch about a known criminal. Visiting a Pitt Street auction house on Friday, the 15th of March, three days after John Bridges' body had been found, detectives asked the proprietors if anyone was trying to use the sale rooms to sell goods matching a list of the dead man's missing possessions. Two men were. Articles of clothing, including distinctive boots, had already been sold. These two men were coming back the following day to collect the proceeds and to offer more goods for sale. The following morning from 8am, three detectives were waiting, and sure enough, at 10.30am, a a familiar face appeared. This well-dressed, handsome young man was George Robert Nichols. Questioned by Detective Elliot as to where he'd gotten the goods he had sold and was trying to sell, Nichols' answers bordered on the farcical. Who are you? he demanded. Why do you ask me that? Do you mean to say you don't know me, or do you think it is the first time I've seen you? Detective Elliot shot back. Nichols still feigned ignorance. No, who are you? If you won't know me, Elliot said, I must tell you. I'm a police officer, and my reasons for asking you are because I believe those things to be stolen. Nichols protested that he'd received the goods from a man in Surrey Hills, but refused to name this fellow. Detective Elliot was one step ahead. Did you not get them from a man named Froud? Froud was an alias for Alfred Lester, a young crim who was Nichols' best friend. Who's Froud? asked Nichols. You know who Froud is, said Elliot. You've been seen in his company and you were in jail with him. Oh, Froud, said Nichols, suddenly remembering. He's not in town. Detective Elliot got the address of the Surrey Hills house Nichols shared with his wife and two children and then arrested him on suspicion of murdering John Bridger on or around the 7th of March. At this point, Nichols clammed up, saying, I should like to tell you all I know about it, but I should like to see a solicitor first. I don't want to say anything to convict myself. Searching Nichols' home, Detective Elliot found rope identical to that used in tying Bridger's legs to the stone. Meanwhile, young Alfred Lester, a.k.a. Froud, wasn't out of town. He was across town at a jewellery store in Haymarket and making an absolute mess of trying to sell a watch. The jeweller refused to buy it without proof of purchase. Lester went to get this receipt and the suspicious jeweller sent his brother to fetch the police. A detective was waiting for Lester when he returned that afternoon and questioned him about the timepiece and the receipt, which came from a Melbourne watchmaker. ''Oh, it's all right,'' Lester said. ''It is not my watch.'' Asked who owned it, he said, ''Walker.'' And, pointing across Haymarket, claimed this man lived over there. Then Lester abruptly added that Nichols had given him the watch. Told he was about to be charged with murder, Lester said, ''Murder? What murder?'' ''The killing of John Bridger.'' ''Do you mean the man who was floating in the Parramatta River?'' he asked. The detective did, and charged him with that murder.'' That was troubling enough, but what was also very disturbing was that Alfred Lester was wearing clothes bearing the initials WPW. That, coupled with his blurted claim the watch he was trying to pawn had belonged to a man named Walker, implied something terrible. William Percy Walker, WPW, was a schoolteacher from Melbourne who'd recently arrived in Sydney, and he hadn't been seen in over a week. Sydney was in shock, not just at the savagery of John Bridges' murder, but that the accused men were young, intelligent, well-spoken, handsome and respectably dressed. They were far from the image of the bestial criminal lurking in the shadows of the Rocks or Darlinghurst. Robert Nichols, who'd go by the name George, was born in 1838 in England. The family soon went back to Sydney, where his father was a ship owner and shipping agent. Young George got his education at Sydney College in Hyde Park, but left at the age of 14 to go to sea. Returning to Sydney the following year, he was arrested for forging a note worth £40 in order to steal from his employer. He went to jail for a few days to scare him straight. Next, young Nichols went back to sea, staying away from Australia for almost a decade. He lived for a time in Spain where he learned Spanish and the young man who also spoke French went to London where he went to jail in 1861 for 12 months for another fraud. Returning to Australia, Nichols tried to work for his father but soon abandoned this for the Goldfields where he robbed a mate, getting away with this crime. Back in Sydney, Nichols in 1863 married Sarah Sophia Clark and the following year she bore him a son, Robert, with a daughter named Florence, following in 1867. But being a father didn't put Nichols on the straight and narrow. He was in and out of jobs, as a railway porter and ship lumper, and in the mid-1860s tried his hand at distilling and selling illegal liquor. During this time, the family had to rely on Nichols' father for support. In the late 1860s, Nichols read a French newspaper article about a French man who hired girls under false pretenses so he could murder them and sell their clothes. Nichols was inspired to run a similar, if less deadly, scam. He placed an ad for a girl to go up the country with a lady. Two women responded. He hired them and, when they were to depart, stole their clothes and used an auction house to sell them. With the police on his trail, Nichols fled and hid in the botany swamps before making his way south on foot to Wollongong. He came back to Sydney under one of his many aliases, changed his appearance and got a job as a clerk. But again, he couldn't resist the temptation to forge his employer's name to steal money. On the run again, Nichols went to Melbourne, then Launceston, where he was caught by police and returned to Sydney. On the 16th of May, 1870, George Nichols was found guilty of two charges of larceny and one of forgery and sentenced to two years in Darlinghurst Jail. On that very same day, Alfred Lester was also sentenced in the same courtroom to two years in the same jail. Alfred Lester and George Nichols had much in common. Lester was a native of Dorsetshire, England and had been born into a wealthy family around 1848. Leaving school at age 15, he'd got work as a telegraph clerk, but was caught embezzling funds. Fleeing to London, he found his way to Sydney in 1869, where he found employment with a surveyor. He promptly stole from his boss, and on that day in court was sentenced to Darlinghurst Jail for two years for three counts of forgery and two of obtaining goods under false pretenses. Behind bars, Nichols and Lester became best friends, and upon their release in early 1872, both men worked at the Sydney Meat Preserving Company. Now, on Monday the 18th of March 1872, they were alleged murderers appearing in Sydney's Central Police Court. Nichols seemed unconcerned by the proceedings, while Lester, who looked far younger than his 24 years appeared to be very frightened. Both men were remanded in custody and reappeared in court the next day for an inquiry. The man who'd shared a drink with John Bridger the day he disappeared testified that the victim had used a barrow man to transport his trunk, a wooden box, and other possessions to the King Street wharf Where he was to meet his prospective employers. He also identified the dead man's boots, which another witness testified to having made for John Bridger, while one of the auctioneers told the court he'd sold these boots on behalf of the prisoners in the dock. What emerged was that John Bridger had reached the wharf and was met by Nichols and Lester, who told him there wasn't enough room in their private boat for his possessions. They convinced him to leave them in an adjacent public house for safekeeping, promising they'd arrange for them to be shipped the following day. A servant at this hotel testified that, not long after, Lester and another man had removed a trunk, box, seaman's bag and other items, taking these things away in a horse-drawn van. Further witnesses said the goods were taken to the room Lester rented in Millers Point. Lester's landlady at Miller's Point said at this time he'd shown up with a scratched up face and that Nichols had told her that these injuries had been caused by a fall in a boat. The inquiry also heard that both men had abruptly left work at the meat preserving company just before John Bridges' disappearance and that neither had returned since. Lester also hadn't returned to his Miller's Point lodgings on the night of the murder and hadn't been seen for most of the next day. A fellow lodger testified he'd seen both men in possession of John Bridges' belongings, the same belongings that were now exhibits in the courtroom. The publican of a Strawberry Hills hotel said that on the 14th of March, Nichols and Lester, with these items in tow, had come to his premises asking if he knew where they could rent a room. Next door, he told them. When Nichols and Lester were arrested, a policeman found John Bridger's things in the room that they'd rented. The police officer also found a rough diagram of a man bound with rope in the same fashion that the victim had been. Disturbingly, police had also recovered a considerable amount of clothing for a man smaller than John Bridger. All of these articles bore the initials WPW, or the name W.P. Walker. With preliminary evidence presented, the jury found George Nichols and Alfred Lester guilty of the willful murder of John Bridger, and the judge committed the men to stand trial. The judge asked the men if they wanted to say anything. They didn't. At noon that very same day, three police, acting on information from the inquiry, took a boat up the Parramatta River to Five Dock. There, they made a search close into shore. Around 4 p.m., after seeing a fatty substance on the water's surface at Hen and Chicken Bay, the police saw a man's legs sticking straight up out of the water. The head was beneath the surface, having been weighed down by a rope tied to a 55 kilogram stone. Hauling the body into the boat, the police took it to the Circular key Dead House, which was what the morgue was called back then. There, at 7.30pm by moonlight, a reporter for the Empire newspaper saw evidence of the killer's ferocity in what he called the most horrid sight a man ever looked at. He wrote, The back of the head was battered in as if by a hammer, and from the wounds the matter of the brain was escaping. There was also a fearful wound on one side of the head." Inside the dead house, a doctor and police inspected the man's clothing, finding some coins, keys, a diary, and two rings. The man's singlet bore the letters WPW. William Percy Walker had been found.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news!
1: Two witnesses who'd known him during his brief time in Sydney were summoned and both positively identified the body. He'd been a small man, about 5'3", and in his mid-twenties, about the same age as John Bridger. A detective compared the rope with the one that had been used to weigh down Bridger. They were identical. Police learned that Walker had for three weeks been renting a room in Bridge Street from a Mrs. Stevenson. The police went to these lodgings and searched Walker's room. There they found a hatbox which contained a substantial amount of money along with jewellery and photographs. Also among the dead man's effects was a draft of a letter addressed to TYC, the initials used in the Herald ad, in which Walker said he'd for many years been employed in stores both in England and in Australia and he hoped to be granted an interview. Even more damning was the reply from a Arthur J. Norton, yet another of Nichols's aliases. Dated the 13th of March, it read, Mr. Walker, I beg to inform that I have authorized Mr. James to close with you in the reference to the advertisement in the Herald on the fourth instant. The salary allowed you will be 30 shillings a week and you will live with us. The handwriting was confirmed as that of George Nichols. Staggeringly, police also found a note written by Walker before his disappearance in which he said he suspected he might meet with foul play. At the inquest into Walker's death, which was held at the Observer Hotel, which was the venue for all such investigations into bodies kept at the Circular Quay Deadhouse, much damning testimony was heard. Walker had told one witness that he'd answered the ad and received correspondence from a Mr. Norton advising he was one of six men being considered for the position. The son of Walker's landlady, Frederick Stevenson, identified Nichols as the man who'd come to their house to meet with Walker about this job. Further correspondence from Charles Norton had instructed Walker to meet his new employers at the King Street Wharf from where he'd be taken inland. One witness who had befriended Walker said he'd strongly advised Walker not to go because he'd not actually met this Arthur Norton. As a newcomer to Sydney, Walker asked the witness for advice. The witness told the court he'd told Walker to call at the detective office in reference to the advertisement, as the whole affair appeared to him to be somewhat mysterious, and to leave his valuables somewhere safe. Tragically, Walker only listened to the part about leaving his valuables somewhere safe. Two days later, on the 13th of March, around 8pm, Walker headed to the wharf in a horse-drawn van in the company of his landlady's son, Frederick. During the short trip, the boy had noticed Walker's watch and identified it in the court as the one Lester had been trying to sell to the jeweller. Frederick told the inquest that Nichols and Lester met the van and told Walker that as space in the boat was limited, he should leave his trunk at a Wharfside Hotel and that they would have it sent the following day. Police tendered a detailed list of all the clothing belonging to Walker that had been found in his trunk and In the room that Nichols and Lester had rented in Strawberry Hills. They also told the court that they had discovered an iron pick-like tool called a life preserver covered in blood. A man who rented boats told the inquest that on three occasions he'd rented a vessel to Nichols and Lester. Two of these dates corresponded with the murders of Bridger and Walker. Each time the prisoners had returned the boat the following morning, the last time there'd been bloodstains on the sale. Nichols told the man it was fish blood, but an analytical chemist told the inquest he'd tested the stain and that the blood came from a mammal. Chillingly, the inquest also heard from two men who had also answered the ads and who had been prospective victims. A clerk named Charles Napier had two meetings with a man calling himself Thomas Y. Clark, T-Y-C, who he now identified as Nichols. Napier had been offered the job only for it to be retracted when, it seems, a wealthier-seeming victim was found. An unemployed sailor named John Harrison told a similar story. Nichols, again calling himself Clark, had interviewed him, asking questions about whether he had any friends or relatives in Sydney, and how much luggage and ready cash he had. Seemingly dissatisfied with the result, Nichols sent Harrison a letter saying the position had been filled. As the inquest continued, Nichols and Lester each day appeared more and more crestfallen as the case against them appeared more and more ironclad. It's no surprise that the Parramatta River murders caused a sensation in Sydney. Up to 2,000 people crowded around the Observer Hotel, hoping to get a glimpse of Nichols and Lester. And rumours spread rapidly. Another man and woman were said to be missing, and that some of their clothing had been found in a pawn shop and had been traced to the prisoners. A gold prospector from the country was also missing, thought to have been killed by Nichols and Lester. This man would soon write a letter to the Bendigo advertiser, reporting that he was very much alive and no further bodies were found. On Friday, the 22nd of March, the jury retired to consider the evidence in the Walker killing. After 15 minutes, they returned to declare they believed Nichols and Lester were guilty of the willful murder of William Percy Walker. Now the judge ruled that the men should formally stand trial for this crime. With the evidence against Nichols and Lester for Walker's murder close to incontrovertible, The Crown would try the men for this crime first. If they were found guilty, they would hang. If they were somehow found innocent, they would then be tried for Bridges' murder. On the 21st and 22nd of May, George Nichols and Alfred Lester were tried for William Percy Walker's murder in the Central Criminal Court. Alfred Lester's legal team, which included Australia's future First Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, argued the younger man should be tried separately. It's likely they hoped to mount a defence that would cast him as Nichols' hapless pawn. But the judge rejected their plea. The judge instructed the members of the jury to only take into account the evidence presented, not what they had read or heard, and during the trial, no reference was made to the accused's criminal histories, or to Bridges' death, the strongest physical evidence and most convincing witnesses from the Walker inquest were called to testify. Counsel acting for Nichols and Lester made a valiant attempt to cast doubt on the evidence as purely circumstantial and the witnesses as mistaken to identities. But the defence counsel could offer no alternative theories as to who killed Walker or how the accused came to have so many of his possessions which they put up for sale under false pretenses. The jury took just 25 minutes to find both men guilty. Young Lester took the news placidly, though Nichols looked on the verge of tears. Asked by the judge if he wanted to say anything, the packed courtroom was deathly silent as everyone waited to hear what the newly convicted murderer had to say for himself. If it may please your... Nichols began to say, but the word honour became a sigh, then a yelp, and he fell backwards unconscious and slammed to the floor. Nichols was revived, given some brandy, and stood trembling as he and Lester heard the judge pronounce the death sentence upon them. The judge was now able to reveal that he had passed sentence on both men on the 16th of May 1870. He said he believed they had learned nothing from their incarceration and that they had callously said about the murder of their fellow human beings. This was acknowledging John Bridger in the pursuit of profit. Listening, Nichols rested his forehead on his hands while Lester cried bitterly. The judge continued painting a heartrending scene of Walker's murder you and Lester deliberately rode your victim on the evening of the 13th of March to the place of his intended murder. During the last journey, he must have conversed with you as a friend, taking him to his future home when you were speeding onwards in the gloom of the evening till you had taken him far beyond all human aid into the unfrequented part of Sydney Harbour. And then, even while hope was cheering his poor deluded heart, With the fancied approach to his future home, which you had falsely placed before him, you slashed your remorseless life preserver with repeated blows upon his head, one wound breaking into his brains. Lester was asked if he wanted to say anything. He tried and failed and instead handed over a prepared written confession in which he portrayed himself as Nichols' victim. Lester said that on the 7th of March he'd innocently gone on the boat with Nichols and Bridger and near where the body was found, they'd gone to get a stone for ballast before all having a sleep because the tide was too low to continue up the river. Lester had been woken by a gunshot. This was Nichols shooting Bridger in the head and then his friend had demanded his help in tying the body to the stone to send the dead man pearl fishing. Lester said he was afraid of Nichols. Four days later, Lester claimed, Nichols abused me for want of courage and said that dead men tell no tales and told me of the advertisements and the quantity of replies he had received and that if I would go with him he would give me sufficient to return home respectable but that if I refused to go I was to look out for myself. For fear and not possessing strength of mind to resist I yielded. With Walker in the boat and asleep at low tide the men having again gotten a stone supposedly for ballast Lester said he'd pleaded with Nichols not to go through with another murder. Unable to change his friend's mind, Lester covered himself with a sail. Ten minutes later, he heard a gunshot and got up to see Nichols beating Walker to death with the life preserver. Lester said he refused to help him throw the body in the river. He then called me a coward and told me he would mark me for it, Lester's confession read. We then came back to Sydney. While there's no doubt Nichols was the leader... Lester's self serving confession was scarcely believable and didn't account for witnesses testifying to his role in luring victims to their deaths, nor for his involvement in selling their property, nor did it account for his life of crime before he met Nichols. For the next two months, the prisoners were held in a new wing of Darlinghurst Jail. Awaiting their executions, both men were, understandably, depressed. Lester, it was reported, appeared very penitent and paid close attention to the spiritual guidance offered to him by clergymen. Nichols was far moodier and less communicative. The men were watched day and night, never allowed to be out of sight of a warder in case they should try to cheat the hangman. Gradually, Nichols returned to religion. He carved into the wall of his cell the words, The blood of Christ cleanseth from all sin. Finally feeling remorse for his crimes, Nichols gave a full confession to a reverend, which was delivered to Henry Parks, who was now Premier of New South Wales. Nichols' confession provided a chillingly detailed account of the murders, including how the plan had been hatched during the time both he and Lester had been working at the meat-preserving company. Part of the confession read, One night when taking a walk and lamenting over our position, I said in a joke to Lester, you had better take a man up the Parramatta River, kill him, rob him, and then cast him into the river. The men discussed it, laughed it off, but in the coming days, returned to the subject and every time it seemed to gain a stronger hold on us. They agreed to go through the plan and get suitable victims through advertisements in the Herald. Having interviewed applicants, they settled on John Bridger, and planned to poison him with alcohol laced with laudanum. In the boat, though, Bridger complained his brandy was bitter and drank no more. After going ashore to get a stone supposedly for ballast, they told Bridger to get some sleep until the tide rose. Nichols and Lester quietly argued over who should shoot their victim. Finally, Nichols pulled the trigger, shooting Bridger in the head while he was asleep. But the bullet didn't kill him. Bridger rose, crying out, Oh, Mr. Clark, you have deceived me. Nichols hit him in the head with his pistol, apparently knocking him out. Lester searched his pockets while Nichols took the boat into deeper water. Lester tied the rope to Bridges' feet and they heaved him overboard, with the dying man coming to and saying, Put me on shore, put me on shore, before he sank and drowned. Nichols' matter-of-fact confession continued. The murder of Walker was done in much the same way, but with the following exceptions. The poison was administered in ale, which we learnt was Walker's favourite drink. Neither dose taking the desired effect, we lay down to sleep as before until the tide rose. Neither I nor Lester slept. When I would rise to do it, Lester kept looking at me to spur me on. When I fired, Walker rose and cried, Mercy, mercy, my mother, my mother, spare my life and I will give you all I have. I struck him repeatedly upon the head with the life preserver. Walker was then thrown into the water on his back, his feet being in the boat. He was crying out, murder, murder, when we put his head under the water, where we kept him until he was silenced in death. His watch was then taken from his person and a stone fastened to his neck. He was being shoved into the water when Lester said, we have not searched his pockets. I answered, good God, I have done enough, let him go. He was then cast into the water and he sank. This is the reason why some sovereigns were found in his pocket when his body was discovered. In Darlinghurst Jail, in the week before his execution, Nichols was visited by his wife Sarah, who had stood by her husband through everything. But the children, who Nichols desperately wanted to see, were not allowed to accompany their mother. Sarah Nichols also then met with Henry Parks to plead for her husband's life. The Premier referred her to the administrator of the government, Sir Alfred Stephen, who regretted to say there was no hope of reprieve. Tuesday the 18th of June dawned cold and grey. Nichols and Lester rose in their separate cells at 6am and dressed in the clothes of the condemned, rough shirts, jackets and trousers. They each had a hearty breakfast and were visited by clergymen and spent more than an hour in prayer. At half past eight, their Iron restraints were struck and the hangman Bull and his assistant came and pinioned both men, tying their arms with rope. At 9am, spectators who'd gotten highly sought-after tickets to the execution were admitted to Darlinghurst Jail, and there was, the Herald reported, a most unseemly and disgraceful scramble as these visitors rushed to get the best vantage points. The hangman led Nichols and Lester... To the scaffold. From this death platform, they stared all around at the 150 people watching in silence. Lester looked pale and weak, but Nichols stood tall and even managed a smile or two. Asked if they wanted to say any final words, Nichols took the opportunity. My friends, he said in a loud, clear voice, I think it is only right that I should acknowledge the justice of the sentence passed upon me. I thank God for bringing me to a state that I can see I ought to suffer for my crimes. I never thought I should come to this, and I hope it will be a warning to you. Once I was an innocent child, but I was led into temptation and fell into evil ways. I once resolved to be good, but I did not pray to God to assist me. I now ask his forgiveness and trust in him. Nichols then repeated the 117th Psalm. O praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Lester, voice cracking with emotion, said, Dear friends, I am to suffer justly, and I hope my case will be a warning to all young men, especially to those with Christian parents. I have a mother. He broke down crying and couldn't speak any further. Nichols and Lester then shook hands with the clergyman present. Then Nichols surprised his friend by putting out his hand. There was a moment's hesitation but Lester accepted. The two men shook hands cordially. Now the hangman and his assistant fastened ropes with knots as unslippable as those that had been used to sink their victims in the Parramatta River around the necks of Nichols and Lester. White hoods were pulled down over their faces. In an instant, the hangman withdrew the bolt and the two men dropped through the scaffold's trap door. Lester died instantly. But Nichols, Nichols struggled for 10 minutes, feet dancing, chest and shoulders shuddering until finally, mercifully, he was still. After 20 minutes, the hangman and his assistant cut the bodies down and removed the hoods. Lester's face was grotesquely swollen and oozing blood. His neck had been broken, but Nichols had died of slow strangulation. The hangman's ropes, as was customary to thwart souvenir hunters, were burned in the jail. At 11am, the bodies of Nichols and Lester were taken from Darlinghurst Jail's dead house by a government contractor who had the job of burying criminals. But this man also ran the Morning Star Hotel in Waterloo, and this is where he took the corpses. There, he put them on display in one of his rooms and charged the public to look at the bodies. Nichols and Lester had murdered for money. Now their dead bodies were putting coins in the pocket of a man whose cold-bloodedness they might have appreciated. It wasn't until the next afternoon that police found out, and when they arrived at the Morningstar Hotel, they discovered a crowd of people, including drunken women, who were, in the words of one report, gratifying their morbid curiosity by examining the disfigured remains of humanity. Having cleared the room, police resealed the coffins and that night they were sent by train to the cemetery at Haslam's Creek, which, fittingly, is a tributary of the Parramatta River just a little further west from where the crimes had been committed. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you listen to episode 6, you'll know my great-grandfather's name was George Nichols. I'm happy to report he wasn't THE George Nichols who swung for the Parramatta River murders. But I did stumble upon this story while researching my family history. I also did go to East Sydney Technical College in the late 1980s, which was located inside the walls of the old Darlinghurst Jail. We studied Shakespeare and modern history in the same building that prisoners, including Nichols and Lester, met their deaths. If you've enjoyed listening to Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could take the time to rate and or review at iTunes. If you want to know more about this and other Forgotten stories and see photos of the people and places you've been hearing about, visit my webpage, ForgottenAustralia.com. There, you'll also find information about my new book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations?